Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in Far Sorry on the west banks of Windermere on a scorching hot day with author, illustrator and our guide for today's wonder, Mark Richards. Hello Mark, how are you coping with the heat? Oh, well, I've got plenty of sunscreen on and it's a lovely setting, so I'm looking forward to this uh, wonder today. Now, listeners may remember, Mark, that last time you were on Country Stride, you were a little bit under the weather with your voice, but you recovered very quickly. I did. I thought at the time this is one of my occasional summer colds, and it turned out to be precisely that. Though I gather you succumbed to something else a little later. Yes, it's true. Yes, after your summer cold, shortly after I got COVID. So, um, <laughs> one of those strange coincidences it, it was a, in life. It was a strange one, but yes, I'm thankful goodness. that you're back on form as well. Oh, yeah, it's true. I wasn't too badly affected. So, we're back here in the fine fettle. And I think it's the second hottest day of the year so far in Cumbria. It's Sahara down the south. Um, we're here today in Farsori and the location very much the clue. Uh, we've been wanting to do this podcast for years and for whatever reason the stars have not aligned but they have aligned finally on this scorching hot August day. What is the theme of today's podcast? Beatrix Potter, an absolute colossal figure in terms of so many aspects of the creative culture and the agricultural nature of this landscape. We have in the past covered many of the great Lakeland figures, haven't we? We've talked about John Ruskin, we've talked about uh, Hardwick Rawnsley, um, Beatrix Potter very much uh, a missing link really in, in this narrative of great Lakeland folk. We have a fabulous guest today, Mark. Who, who are we walking with? Uh, Janet Edwards. She's come up from Preston, but she's been associated with the Beatrix Potter Society and Hilltop for over 20 years. Well, I can see Janet over there in the Village Hall car park, highly recommended by the way, £2 parking fee per day and we've got a space here on a very, very busy day, so lovely little spot to meet Janet and set off into this deep dive into the life and works of Beatrix Potter. It's a glorious day, absolutely glorious day. Blue sky, wall to wall, or treetop to treetop. And I've come along a lovely little lane, and I'm in a sheltered spot with a breeze, which is absolutely exquisite. Talking of exquisite, I've got a lovely lady with me today, Janet Edwards. I wonder, Janet, could you tell me a little bit about where you're from and what connection you have with Beatrix Potter? My name's Janet Edwards. I live uh, near Preston in Lancashire. I've been a member of the Beatrix Potter Society now for nearly 20 years and I've also volunteered at Hilltop, the home that's owned by the National Trust now, and I've been volunteering there for nearly 20 years as well. I was first introduced to Beatrix Potter as a child with the stories 
And um, I've also introduced my children to the stories and my grandchildren to the stories as well. Absolutely wonderful. That is what it's all about, isn't it? Is that young connection that people of every generation feel with Beatrice Potter. Can you give a picture of the actual walk we're going to do? You've identified a journey that is very pertinent to the story. We're going to go over the Wilfin Beck, which um, appeared in the fairy caravan. We are then going to go down the lane, and on the left-hand side is Oatmeal Crag, and that was one of Beatrix Potter's favourite spots where she used to like to go and sit. And then we are going to continue down the lane to Moss Eccles Tarn, um, which is where Beatrix and William Healy's husband, had a little rowing boat, and they used to row on the tarn. William used to fish and Beatrix used to sketch. We then carry over the fell and then we come down into Sori where we will be able to see Hilltop. So let's get going. Right. Fabulous. On a day like today, splashing through water is rather special. Now, let's start from the start. Uh, Beatrix was born not locally. She was born down south. Where was she born and what was her roots? Beatrix was born on the 28th of July in 1866. And uh, she lived at number two, Bolton Gardens in Kensington in London. And she was the eldest daughter of Rupert Potter and Helen Potter. Her father was um, a barrister, but he didn't need to work and therefore didn't do because he had um, the necessary funds to be able to not work at all. And um, he had quite a very nice life. He was a very keen photographer, amateur photographer, took lots and lots of photographs. He um, used to go to his club every day. He just lived the life of a gentleman. Her mother, Helen, on the other hand, she was a very keen watercolourist. She was also a very good embroideress. And um, she used to go out visiting in the carriage and have afternoon tea with friends. She used to go out for dinner and she used to um, have elaborate dinner parties at her house as well. So that was her upbringing. Um, She never went to school. Beatrix lived in the nursery. And uh, there was um, a succession of nursery maids and nannies and governesses. When Beatrix was six, her brother Bertram was born. And they were very close companions until Bertram was sent away to school. That artistry of her father's and her mother later found expression in her love of art and drawing. She was always drawing, all the time, looking for wildflowers, for animals, for insects, whatever. And uh, she would draw them. Both of them would. And um, not only that, she used to go, when she was a little bit older and she was allowed to go out on her own, she used to go to the National History Museum, which, of course, is not very far away from Kensington Gardens. And she used to draw and sketch in there. And they kept numerous, numerous pets upstairs on the nursery floor. So there were real pets. Real pets. So there were rabbits outside in hutches. There was the family dog. There was wild birds. There was a salamander at one point. There was a frog. There was all sorts of things that were kept up there in the nursery. Unknown, really, probably to her parents. (laughs) During the summer months, they would go away on holiday... They would go away for three months at a time and take the servants with them. At the beginning, they always went up to Scotland. 
and they went to a property called Dalgais, which is up in Perthshire. So her earliest trips uh, as a family beyond London were to Scotland. At some point, of course, she came to the Lake District. She came to the Lake District at the age of 17 in 1892 when the family rented the property Ray Castle, which is on the other side of the lake. At first, Beatrix wasn't too impressed with the Lake District. In fact, they were all quite disappointed that they hadn't been to Scotland. A little bit further down from Ray Castle is St Margaret's Church, which has now been closed by the diocese. And um, at that point in time, the vicar of St Margaret's Church was Canon Rawnsley, who then went on to become one of the founder members of the National Trust. Her parents became quite friendly with uh, Canon Rawnsley and eventually Beatrix also became friendly with him and supported him throughout her life in his role as one of the founder members of the National Trust until his death in 1920. We'll come back to the part that Canon Hardwick Rawnsley played into this, but could you tell us a little bit about the family dynamics Uh, Beatrice was very close to her brother Bertram. Uh, They were constant companions because at that point in time her mother wouldn't allow them to mix with other children. So Bertram really was her only companion other than her nurses and her governesses until he went away to school. She was not particularly close to her mother and um, she was far closer to her father and he used to take her to art galleries and he also taught her how to take photographs and he used to give her his old camera so that she could take photographs of her own. So she was good at composition and that was one of the early things and she loved detail, that's another factor isn't it? That was from her love of plants and animals. Yes, in uh, 1896, um, she became particularly interested in fungi. When they stayed at Dalgais, there was a postman up there, Charlie McIntosh, and um, he was a a very keen naturalist at the beginning when she first started to become interested in the fungi. He would send her specimens down to London in the post. She would then paint two copies, kept one for herself, and then she would return the other one to Charlie and he would have a look at it and see that it was accurate and that it was anatomically correct. That now is the reason why there are the watercolours of the fungi in the Armit Museum but also there are fungi watercolours up in Perth in the museum there. We've got this picture of Beatrix. Uh, She didn't mix with other children but what was her character? She was a very shy individual and she was also a very delicate child. She was quite often ill and at the age of 14 she suffered from rheumatic fever which was to affect her for the, for the rest of her life. The biggest thing I think was the fact that she found it quite difficult to um, communicate with other people and be around other people as well. That's a lovely little stroll up from the back there. You come up a lane, it's a charming little lane. I would call it an outgang, which is where the farmer would bring his stock, the sheep or the cattle, up to the upper pastures. Uh, I notice over to the right this cuckoo brow wood and ivy intake. We've come away from far Sori, and of course it's near Sori, where we'll be going shortly. The Sori element, uh, I'm sure our listeners will expect me to explain what that meant. Well, of course, it means 
a muddy place, which is rather a, not what it is today. Moss Eccles Tarn. Well, Eccles is interesting because that's an old church. Anyway, let's go back to Beatrix and her, her early life. One of the things she liked to do was, I believe in code, she wrote a log of her life. Yes, from the ages of uh, 15 to 30, she kept um, a journal of her everyday happenings in life and she also kept it while she went on holiday and recorded everything that they did. It was written in code and uh, the diaries were found at Castle Cottage in 1953 and they were then deciphered by a man called Leslie Linder. It took Leslie Linder seven years to uh, decipher the code and that was because when she first started to write the diary the, the writing was quite big and he could quite easily read it and decipher it but as time went on it got smaller and smaller and he found it harder and harder to decipher. He then published all of the journal in a book which is now out of print but you can find them second-hand in uh, second-hand bookshops. Then I believe at the age of 30, these journals came to a grinding halt. What was that all about? The journal came to a halt because um, she started to think very seriously about what she wanted to do with her life. And she wanted to become independent. She wanted to earn her own living. So her first venture into that world was she produced some Christmas cards. Um, she hand-painted the Christmas cards and she received a cheque for £6 for those Christmas cards. So that was the start of um, her adventure into this world of writing, etc. What was the design on those cards? Uh, there was Peter Rabbit and um, there was a mouse and uh, other things as well, yeah. Mm. She distilled these from her earlier experiences and the name Peter, who does that relate to? She had two rabbits. She had Peter Piper and she also had Benjamin Bouncer. Uh -huh. Now, Benjamin Bouncer had the most glorious coat and um, she was not sentimental about animals at all. And when the animals died, quite often she skinned them, um, boiled the flesh off them, and then she would use the skeletons to sketch and draw. And Benjamin Bouncer's coat, it was the most glorious colour, was kept at Hilltop, and that is also on display in London at the V&A um, in the uh, exhibition there. Uh, going back to the diary, the notion of exploring the Lake District became an element of her life, didn't it? Yes, it did. So they stayed at numerous properties throughout the uh, Lake District. They stayed over at Lincoln, which is on the shores of Derwent Water. She did a lot of um, sketching there and watercolours, which then were transferred into the tale of Squirrel Nutkin. If um, people visit Lingholm, it's now owned by a gentleman called David Seymour and he has actually done a lot of research into the uh, walled garden there and um, he has identified that possibly Peter Rabbit, Mr McGregor's garden, was based at Lingholm. Beatrix also wrote in a letter that it was based there but if anybody was to visit they wouldn't be able to recognise it because of some of the alterations that had been made. They also stayed at an adjacent property called Four Park and the garden in Benjamin Bunny um, is based on the garden at Four Park. And who was Mr McGregor? Mr McGregor, they believe, um, if you see a photograph of the old postman up at Dal Guys called Charlie McIntosh, um, he's got a very long beard and they believe that um, she could have based Mr McGregor on Charlie McIntosh. Understandable. It's a good Scottish name and she'd had those Scottish holidays. Initially, she did not like the Lake District, but a process went on that turned her to become 
far more engaged and devoted to it. Yes, and in 1892, as I've already said, they came to Ray Castle. In 1893, they made one journey back to um, Scotland, to Eastwood, which is on the banks of the Tay. And that's quite important, really, because um, during that stay on the 4th of September... 1893 she wrote a letter to a little boy called Eric because he wasn't well and that was a picture letter that contained the story of Peter Rabbit and on the 5th of September the day after thinking about it she thought that his brother Noel would feel a little bit left out so she wrote another picture letter and that was the story of Jeremy Fisher so that is how those two stories evolved They never returned back to Scotland after that holiday and all the other holidays now after that were taken in the Lake District and she began to fall in love with the place. When she came to stay at Eastwyke, she wrote that um, Sorry was one of the most prettiest little places that she'd ever seen and that the people were amazing. They lived um, in the village and they participated. She would be able to drive about in her carriage. Um, She went walking in the area as well and she basically just fell in love with it. That's fascinating. Well, we'll go up the outgang, as it were, uh, head towards Moss Eccles Town, and uh, we'll start about the genesis of the books. How enchanting we've come by Moss Eccles Town. There's a family having a dip, and who can blame them? It's such a perfect day. Wonderful reflection with the trees. There's even water lilies at this uh, northern end. Beatrix was in her mid-thirties. She was wanting to be independent and find a, a career beyond her reliance on her family and so forth. What did she do? Eventually, she approached her governess, the last governess that she had. Her name was Mrs Annie Moore. And uh, Beatrix, uh, throughout her life, had written picture letters to the children and stories, which Annie had kept. And she explained to Annie that she wanted to publish those stories. And Annie said, well, you may find these useful and gave them back to her. So she did write the story of Peter Rabbit and she approached seven publishers altogether. All of them rejected the book. They said that they didn't think it would sell. Canon Rawnsley... Um, suggested to her that um, he would rewrite the book and put it in verse form and then see if that would be published and that was sent to Warns but thankfully they didn't accept that either. (laughs) So in 1901 she took the determined decision that she would pay for the publication herself and she actually published 250 copies of Peter Rabbit and paid for the publication herself and there were no coloured illustrations it was all black and white sketches then eventually Warren began to realise that there was a market for children's books they approached her and said that they wanted to publish Peter Rabbit there was then quite a long time really it was 1902 before Peter Rabbit was published because there was quite a lot of negotiations going on Warren wanted coloured illustrations. Beatrix was concerned that the colours could not be reproduced as she wanted them in the printing process. And so there was a lot of discussion about that. Beatrix also wanted little books for little hands. And she also wanted them to cost no more than one shilling so that children could buy those books out of their own pocket money. So after 
many months of negotiations, it was agreed that Beatrix herself would do the illustrations in colour and that was how the illustrations came about in, in the little books. Her relationship with Norman Warren grew really, it was a working relationship at the beginning. Uh, who was Norman Warren? Norman Warren was the publisher from the publishing firm of Warren Brothers and Norman was assigned to her by the other two brothers as her publisher. So she worked very, very closely with him. In fact, she was quite hands-on directing and saying what how she wanted the books to look, the front papers, the end papers. She was quite detailed in how she wanted those books to look. So that relationship grew and grew. They were always chaperoned, so someone had to come from the house. She would never spend any time at all with Norman on her own. And then in 1905, the family were about to go on holiday and um, Norman then sent her a letter and in that letter he asked her to marry him. That was how the romance between herself and Norman Warren, the publisher, started. Um, he managed to give her a ring before she went on holiday with the family and she always wore that ring for the rest of her life. During that holiday, about a month later, Norman sadly became very, very ill and he passed away and so they never married at all. The book comes out, Peter Rabbit, and is an incredible success. Yes, it was an incredible success, but I think that was because children's literature at that point in time was becoming more and more important, and children's books were becoming more popular. They were very, very popular in America, and all of these publishers here in the UK began to realise that if they didn't um, cater to these children's uh, literature, then uh, they would lose out. It's a genuine niche at that time. Yeah. Yeah. She often said that she could never understand why Peter Rabbit was so popular. Never. Uh, but he was. As the books became more and more popular, toys and games came out and uh, Beatrix um, was very astute. She wanted to make sure that everything that was produced was as it should be. So she took out a patent on everything and she also had uh, the copyright to the books as well so that no one else could publish those books. After the death of Norman Warren, her life changed significantly and she wanted to be in the lakes properly. She considered the purchase of Hilltop in near Sorry. Yeah, after Norman's death um, she threw herself into the purchase of Hilltop. They believe that Norman knew about Hilltop already because um, they may well have discussed it as it was probably going to be a bolt hole for them both after they married. She decided that she would purchase Hilltop. So she went to the auction herself and she ended up paying um, a very large amount for Hilltop. She paid um, nearly £3,000 for Hilltop, a 34-acre farm, and she used the royalties from the books because four books by this time had been published and also a small legacy that had been left to her by an Aunt Harriet. Interestingly, the farm had been sold six months beforehand for half of that price. So this brings us to uh, another point in her life, and uh, here we are at Moss Eccles Tarn, and William Helis comes on the scene. Yeah, she first met William Healis in 1909 and she met William when she appointed him as her solicitor when she purchased her second farm, which was Castle Cottage. 
because at this point in time she would still have to be down in London because of the demands of her ageing parents and also because her career in the publishing was taking off and she needed to be down there to be involved with Warren Brothers. William was appointed as a representative and he used to go to auctions on her behalf and he used to look out for land that was coming up for sale and slowly but surely the relationship uh, started to develop and then in 1912 William proposed to her and asked her to marry him and she said yes. The sticking point um, in all of this was her parents because her parents did not agree with the marriage obviously for selfish reasons because they believed that if she got married there would be no one else to look after them but they also identified that William wasn't good enough for her so they were totally against the marriage. In 1912, the family went on their last family holiday together and they rented the Lindeth Howe just off the shores of Lake Windermere. It's now a hotel. Bertram, her brother, came, as he always did, to join the family on their summer vacation. He knew that uh, William had asked Beatrix to marry him and he knew that um, her parents were against the marriage. And it was during this holiday that he informed them that he'd been secretly married to Mary Scott for the last 10 years and we have to be very mindful at that point in time that society was very class orientated and Mary was well beneath his class, his social class. He was very happy with her and he told his parents quite clearly that Beatrix had the right to choose who she married and who she lived with. That was her choice and not theirs. Because of that situation, they could hardly now turn around and say that the marriage was not right because he wasn't um, good enough for her. And they were married on the 15th of October, 1913, down in London in Kensington. A very quiet wedding. There was only family there. There were no friends. It was the beginning of the First World War as well. Yeah, yeah. How old would she be at that point? She was 47. You mentioned earlier that Moss Eccleston was a special place for William and Beatrice. Yes, it was very special. We can see the water lilies now on the edge of the tarn. Well, Beatrix planted those water lilies and her and William used to come up here late afternoon. William would fish. They had a little rowing boat up here. She would row for him. Sometimes she would sketch. And that little rowing boat is now in the Windermere Steamboat Museum. How lovely. Was she a romantic person? quite a difficult question to answer I don't suppose she was very romantic if you read the books that is the impression that she get but then she always said that um, spring came to her late in her life and she was at her happiest when she'd married William and they had 30 years together and they were exceedingly happy he supported her they lived a very simple life and they just enjoyed each other well that's given us a lovely feel for her life up to her marriage it's really a time to talk about our farming, but we'll have a little further stroll before we get to that because we've got to get closer to near Sori. We've emerged from the shelter of Moss Eccles Tarn with the lilies in full bloom. It's marvellous. And I've now come onto sheep pasture and I can see Herdwick sheep. You can hear them in the background. This is very much sheep country. The view ahead of me fell walking listeners will know intimately Buck Pike, Brown Pike, Coniston Old Man, Brimfell, Swirl Howe, Witherlam, Crinkle Crags, Piker Blisco, Bowfell, 
and as far as Glorimara. Wow, what a view. But the foreground is really what we're here to talk about, and it's this farming environment here that Beatrix took to her heart. This was her new life. When Beatrix bought um, Hilltop Farm, at the beginning, there were eight little books that were published all about the village of Sori. And then slowly but surely, the transition into farming came about. She started to ask Mr Cannon, the farm manager, what he was doing, asking questions, getting involved. She would help with the haymaking. She would actually help out on the farm. And then when she married William in 1905, she was 47 years old. And she openly said herself that she was no longer interested in writing the little books. And also, her eyesight was starting to go. So she didn't have the capabilities then to be able to produce the fine illustrations, the fine detail in the illustrations that she'd done before. She made the decision that she wouldn't write anymore and that she was going to concentrate on the farming. As she got older, she started to buy hill farms, not for any materialistic reason. There was only one reason, and that was because she wanted to maintain the traditional way of hill farming. And also she wanted to preserve the um, Herdwick breed. It was no different then than it is now. There were developers looking to buy these little farms so that they could take them over and then build properties. The Herdwick breed was in decline as well, just as during the foot and mouth it was in decline. So she realised that um, she needed to do something about it. So she started to get Herdwick sheep at Hilltop. And then in um, 1923, she became aware that uh, Troutbeck Park Farm was coming up for sale. This was in the Troutbeck Valley. She'd walked there as a young girl when they came on holiday and um, it was a beautiful part of the, the Lake District and uh, she decided that she wanted to buy it, which she then went on to do. So she bought the farm, she paid £8,000 for the farm and there was nearly 2,000 acres of land. Contrasted with 3,000 for 34 acres. <laughs> When she took over the farm, it was in a very, very run-down condition. She employed Tom Storey. So this is where Tom Storey, the shepherd, comes in. He was working for another farmer in Troutbeck, Greg's, and she went to see him one afternoon in November and she asked him to come and work for her. She offered him twice as much money as he was earning, so he obviously couldn't refuse. And she was very much involved in all of that renovation of that farm. The herd itself, there was a, a flock of herdwicks that were in very poor, poor condition and they were all suffering from liver fluke. Tom Story told her that there was a new drug available but it was very expensive, but that didn't bother her. She was willing to try anything if she thought it would do good. So they tried this new drug and they got rid of the liver fluke from all of the flock. And within 12 months, the flock had been turned round. Also, she revamped the whole house for the new farm manager, built herself an office because she used to regularly visit Troutbeck Park Farm. It was one of her favourites other than Hilltop. She would go two or three times a week in the car with the chauffeur and she would walk the fells taking one of her sheepdogs with her. So this was a whole different game altogether. This was a big change from this small 34-acre farm to this very large farm and then when they turned that farm round herself and Tom Story with the help of the farm manager and got the flock back to where they wanted it she then said to him 
I want you to come and manage my farm at Hilltop. Marvellous. That's how he came to be a shepherd at Hilltop. Fabulous. What an interesting story. This is all new to me. And it gives you a perspective on that farm. People who drive over Windermere over to the Kirkstone Pass will look down on the park farm. They'll get that view uh, with Ilbell Range above and Troutbeck Tongue. It's a little world of its own down there, isn't it? Mm. She very much identified with the Herdwick sheep and, of course, with the breeding of it. And I think she became the first female president, which was quite unusual, of the Breed Society. Yes, um, she did. During the war years, she actually chaired some of the meetings for the Herdwick Sheep Breeders Association, but was never involved in the committee side of things. In 1943, she was elected president, the first female president of the Herdwick Sheep Breeders Association, and she should have taken up the post in 1944. But sadly, it wasn't to be, because she obviously died in December 1943. Remarkable, in that age, for a woman in a very male-orchestrated world to be considered. She must have been somebody they all admired. She was an off-comer. She would no farming background, and yet she managed to achieve that. But she was also one of the judges at all the shows. She was never happier than when a, one of her tops or a ewes won a prize at one of the village shows. And all the breeders will have observed that. Yeah. What we have there is a, a girl who, in her youth, was very shy and uncomfortable with her life, perhaps, but now she'd found her place in life. Yes, definitely. Um, she'd moved away from London. She never liked living in London. She loved the area that she lived in. She was happy and content with William, her husband, and she loved the farming and she was doing what she wanted to do. She could relate to other farmers. Yeah, she was well informed about a herd with sheep. A lot of the farmers respected her for that because yeah. um, they knew that she knew exactly what she was doing. If we go back to Troutbeck Park Farm when she used that new drug to eliminate liver fluke, that raised her um, standing within the farming community. Um, it raised her up. A lot of them didn't really want to try it because it was probably too expensive to buy but she was willing to give it a go and prove that it was worth doing yeah it was seen that she was an offcomer but for her coming here was actually returning to her roots yeah when she was a lot younger she identified that her and her brother bertram were both at their happiest in the northern part of the country because that was where she believed that they'd come from. Both sets of grandparents, her father's parents, her grandfather owned a calico printing firm in Manchester and her mother's parents also were involved in the Lancashire textile industry as well. So Beatrix always believed that um, she was a northerner. We'll go a little bit further now. We'll get a, a view down onto near Sori and uh, that vicinity of Estwaite Water. That was lovely coming over that brow. We've come down onto a track and we've got the beautiful view down onto Estwaite Water, the east clearing, with a lovely woodland behind it. And you can see the meadows. And um, we've come underneath an ash tree, which is absolutely delightful, because again, we've got a shade on a day like today. Uh, we've uh, got a lovely picture of Beatrix Potter and her devotion to farming. Janet, let's turn the tables a little bit and think about you. And what was your first book of Beatrix that really captivated you? 
Uh, my first book was Peter Rabbit. Um, he's a bit of a rebel, isn't he? Because he goes into Mr McGregor's garden when he's told not to do. So um, I like Peter Rabbit. I also like uh, The Tale of Mrs Tiggywinkle. I think that's quite a nice book as well. And I also like the story of Jemima Puddleduck. And that was based on one of the ducks in the farm. So what specifically caught your attention about these books? I always think the illustrations are absolutely amazing. If you actually go to the gallery or any exhibition and you see the originals and also some of the original illustrations that never managed to get into the books, they are absolutely amazing mm. and beautiful. As a reader or in terms of the children, the stories are not joyous little bouncy little things, are they? They're quite dark in some parts. Yeah, they are quite dark, but she was always quite adamant about that because she said that it was about life as it was really. Um, it's quite interesting now that a lot of children know about the tale of Mr Todd, which quite often years ago children didn't seem to really know about that book. But because of the introduction of CBeebies and series on the television, um, it's quite interesting that a lot of children now can relate to the tale of Mr Todd. As a person... Would you have warmed to Beatrix? Yeah, probably. I think she was just a very straight-talking, straightforward woman and um, she didn't like a lot of fuss. She shunned publicity completely. She didn't want publicity at all. It's interesting, in 1936, Disney came huh. and he wanted to um, produce some of the stories into films, but she turned that down because she didn't believe that he'd be able to get the illustrations right on the film. She didn't want that. If you could be a fly on the wall at just one moment in Beatrix Potter's life, can you pinpoint that occasion? Um, I think it would have been nice to have been able to see um, how she reacted when she first took possession of Hilltop and then also to be able to see her to develop it and also to be able to develop the garden as it is now. Because she did the garden herself. Obviously, she did have people in to help, but she'd never done any gardening before in her life. And she uh, made that garden as it is. Mm, interesting, isn't it? We'll head down towards uh, near Sori. We've come down into near Sori. And I'll just remind you that near is its relationship to Hawkshead as opposed to Farsori, which is further away from Hawkshead. And we're right in the midst of the community and we buy a letterbox. So that's a very eye-catching little feature. It's actually slightly broken, so it's quite an old one. Uh, Janet, can you uh, give us some insight into um, the relationship of uh, the stories to the setting? This little post box here, which is situated in this wall, this appeared in uh, one of Beatrix's watercolours with Peter posting his little letter into the letterbox. And we stood opposite Stony Lane and um, in the tale of Samuel Whiskers, when uh, John the Joiner gets Samuel Whiskers and his family out of Hilltop, they run down to Farmer Potato's house and they run down Stony Lane to get to his barn, which is where they take up residence. And if we just walk along here, on the right-hand side of the road, we come to the Buckle Yates guest house with this absolutely beautiful garden. And uh, Buckle Yates, 
Beatrix used this garden in the book, one of the first of the Sorry books that was published in 1905, and that was The Tale of the Pie and the Patty Pan. So the gate stoops appear just as they are now in one of the illustrations in the little book. Just in front of us is the Tower Bank Arms, and of course that appears in the book of Jemima Puddleduck. And Jemima Puddleduck was one of the ducks off Hilltop Farm. In the distance, just over the field, we can see Castle Cottage. And uh, Beatrix bought this in 1909. That became the marital home. She had some alterations done. She put in a new bathroom, new plumbing, and that was their home for the next 40 years during their marriage. And it's now still owned by the National Trust, but it's got a private tenant in situ. You, you mentioned the installation of a toilet, but of course in Hilltop she didn't have such luxuries of plumbing. No, she didn't. There was no toilet at Hilltop and there was no bathroom. Um, the toilet was outside and the bath, you had to get the tin bath out in front of the fire. That was also one of the reasons why the couple moved to the Castle Cottage. Also as well, uh, there wouldn't have been much privacy at Hilltop because the tenant farmer lives exactly next door to them and I think that was another reason that they wanted a bit of privacy away from the tenant farmer. Ooh, there's a car wanting to be part of the podcast. Yep, he's in the podcast now. There you are. I hope he's happy. One assumes that despite all the comforts of an upbringing, this far more frugal, colder kind of life is something she's warmed to. She certainly did. She loved the simple life. She loved being outside in the countryside. She reveled in it. She was never materialistic. There is the story that the electricity didn't come to this village until 1935, and she would not have it put in either Castle Cottage or Hilltop, but she had it put in the cow shed. <laughs> Very good. The cows and the sheep come first. We've made our way off the road, thank goodness. Uh, there's a nice footpath that runs in harmony with the road and brings us into the meadows, which is absolutely delightful. The whole walk has been quite delightful. Uh, Beatrix Potter, Janet, in her late 50s. However, family, a mum and dad and a brother, where are they at this time? Right. Well, um, shortly after she married William in 1914, her father became seriously ill and he had stomach cancer and he died. So then she had to make the decision that she needed to bring her mother to live up here. She got rented accommodation for her mother, first of all, in a property called Beachmount. And then she purchased Lindeth Howe, which is now the hotel on the road that comes down to the ferry. And her mother lived there with her staff. Her brother Bertram... He remained married to Mary and he lived up in Ancrum on the Scottish borders and he was a gentleman farmer and an artist and sadly he died at the age of 46. He just suddenly uh, collapsed in the garden how from sad. a brain haemorrhage. Oh, so there was only Beatrix left. Her mother lived until she was 91 and then she passed away so there was no one left then on her side of the family. And uh, she was still a quarrying land though in the late 50s uh, and Monk Coniston estate was one of those near Coniston. She became aware that the Monk Coniston was going to be put up for sale. The Marshall family were selling the estate. In 1929-30 time, there was a bit of a depression. Farming wasn't uh, taking off at all. And also, 
um, one of the farms, Home Ground Farm, that had been farmed by her great-grandfather, Abraham Crompton. So she contacted the National Trust, told them that the land was going to come up for sale, and they told her that they did not have the necessary funds to be able to purchase the land. So they made the decision that Beatrix would buy all of the land and then when the National Trust had the necessary funds, they would purchase half of the estate back at the price that she paid for it. Beatrix did purchase the estate. She was in competition with the Forestry Commission, but the Marshall family decided that they would sell it to her. She kept half of it for herself... Um, she did keep the better half for herself, I do have to say. She was a farmer. She was a farmer. <laughs> and also she wrote to Bruce Thompson, um, their representative, saying that as she'd had most of the aggravation, she was going to keep the better half for herself. The National Trust at that point in time appointed her as the land manager for the estate till they bought back their half of the estate. So she found that quite amusing that um, they were paying her at the age of 66 (coughs) to do this job on their behalf. And that's what she did until eventually they appointed Bruce Thompson as the land manager. The National Trust, in fact had one of the first public subscriptions to actually raise the funds to be able to purchase their half of the estate. She kept her half and then on her death it was transferred to her husband and then on his death it was transferred over to the National Trust. The Monk Coniston estate was pretty significant and I, I can cite Tarn House, everybody knows about that, but there are other farms in, in that context as well. Uh, one in particular that springs to mind, of course, is the yew tree farm. And the Miss Potter film, um, they use that farm and they use that as hilltop. And there used to be a little cafe in the front where you could go for tea um, and snacks and things. And the furniture inside that room, Beatrix Potter actually provided the furniture in that room to the farmer's wife. She used to encourage farmer's wives to be able to earn their own income and to boost farm funding. And um, she gave her the furniture for the tea room so she could serve teas to walkers as they walked past. Yeah, it's a great little spot with a spinning gallery. And a wonderful backdrop of Weatherlam. And Home Fell was his, uh, quite a stately, craggy edifice above your head. It's magical valley. I think we'll carry on a little bit further along these meadows, uh, towards the church vicinity, I think, and complete our journey at Farsori and round up this wonderful story of this amazing lady. We've come to a little bit of a halt underneath a hazel bush. This nuts on the ground, it reminds me of Squirrel Nutkin. This is uh, authentic. And the, and the beck running by. And what was the name of the beck? Wilfin Beck. Wilfin. There we are. Uh, everywhere here fitted into her life stories. Um, but her life, Julie, did come to an end. What age and what was the situation at the time? Beatrice was 77 when she died. She caught bronchitis in September 1943 and that went on and developed into pneumonia and she died on the 22nd of December 1943 at Castle Cottage at home uh, with William by her side. Now before she died she'd already made an arrangement with Tom Storey, her shepherd, who knew exactly what he had to do. On her death 
She was cremated at a crematorium at Leighton in Blackpool and her ashes were scattered in a secret place known only to Tom Story and her husband. And when William died 18 months later in a nursing home in York, he was cremated as well and his ashes were scattered in the same place. So there is no gravestone and in the times when the death notice was announced, it said no letters, no flowers and no cards. But there were lots and lots of letters from people um, that came to William um, after her death. He missed her dreadfully. She was the soulmate, really, of his life. He carried out the last of her wishes. And then on his death, his office at Hawkshead, that was transferred over to the National Trust. And that is where the gallery is now. Uh, the copyright to the books was transferred to the National Trust. Warren Brothers is no longer in existence. It's now part of the Penguin Random Group. But the majority of what she owned was transferred over to the National Trust. And it was one of the largest legacies that they had at the time. So there were the 15 working farms. And they're not just around this area. There are two farms right up near Sellafield on the west side of Cumbria on the coast. There was houses... Um, that she'd purchased throughout her life and there was also 4,000 acres of land. She was a little bit of an enigmatic figure and so the notion that in the will that she didn't want any letters and communications was that part and parcel of who she was really. She didn't want a greystone because she thought that people would be coming to look at her greystone. So she left Hilltop which had to be opened up to the public. And she said that was where people could go if they wanted to. The other perspective I would have on Beatrix Potter is the impact on the wider culture, how people perceive the Lake District, England, around the world. I think the illustrations in the little books, people do tend to look at them and they think that that's what uh, England is like. Um, she's very popular in Japan. The little books are used to teach children English. Peter Rabbit is 120 years old this year. I mean, and you think to yourself, well, he's still very popular, isn't he, all over the world, not just here in this country, but everywhere. Very strong in America as well. Very strong in America. They've gone through generations of these stories, haven't they? So children had them read to them by their parents and then they read them to their children. Marketing is exceedingly clever. There's lots of films now. There's two Peter Rabbit films that have just come out, which I know I took my granddaughter to see. She thought it was fantastic. And if you go into any supermarket, you'll see baby clothes with all the little characters on. It's still there, isn't it, even after all this time? And it helps to keep the National Trust running. Good on them. Thank you so much, Janet. You've been an absolute star. I've been um, enthralled uh, through this commentary, this discussion, this wonderful walk in this lovely setting. Uh, I've got a, a much bigger picture of a, somebody who I've admired from a distance, as we all can only do now. To finish up then, uh, Janet, I reflect on the 23 books that Beatrice wrote and in a way, she was creating her own very personal fairy story. Yes, I suppose she was in a way. Um, the final story book, which was published in 1912, just before she married William in 1913, was The Tale of Pigling Bland. That tells the story of Pigling Bland and the little female pig called Pigwig. There is a picture in the book with the two of them standing there, hand in hand, 
looking over the Langdale Fells, and she turns to him and she says, let's run away over the hills and far away. Beatrix, throughout her life, she corresponded with children, but one letter in particular stands out in my mind, and that was from a little girl called Margaret, and Margaret corresponded with her on a regular basis. And Beatrix sent Margaret a copy of the tale of Pigling Bland and told her that she'd become married to uh, William Healis and where she was living at Castle Cottage in Surrey. Margaret, at the age of 10, wrote back and said to her, is the picture of Pigling Bland looking over the Lakeland Fells and the statement underneath on the page when it says, let's run away over the hills and far away, is that you and William in that picture? And Beatrix categorically denied that it was. Perhaps, maybe, she was thinking about herself and William when she put that little quote in that little book, but no one will ever know. She was able to live the life she wanted. She was a woman in the right place at the right time. And one thing that we must always be mindful of is that despite the fact that she stopped writing those little books... It was those little books and the royalties that came from those little books that enabled her to be able to live the life here in the Lake District with her husband, William, doing exactly what she wanted to do. journey's end the sun still blazing hot in a perfect blue sky we're lucky to be in the shade back in the little community hall gardens in far sorry a lovely gentle wander that mark oh yes it was moss eccles time what a lovely spot yeah Yeah, and families were bathing in it and Mm. rightly so what a great woman you know we've been wanting to talk about her for a long time i think Many of our listeners will know bits of the story. Certainly I knew quite a bit about what we spoke about today, but there were many details I knew nothing about. That lovely little anecdote about her brother. Yes, fighting say you can get married. He'd been married secretly to a a woman below his station, as far as his parents were concerned. I love that story at the very end that Janet signed off with because there's a bit of a nuance behind that which is that, of course, the last bit of the umbilical cord holding her to her London life was the fact that she was expected to look after her parents into old age. That's what you did as a single woman. She had to marry to break that umbilical cord so that she could live her dream, move up here and be independent. That was what it was all about. And the only way of doing that was to marry William Helis. So preempting that with this little sketch... She denies it's anything to do with her and William, of course, but that's them going into the sunset, perhaps. Yeah, and I love the fact that a ten-year-old girl yeah, had the insight to it. pick it up. I thought, brilliant. It's always the way, isn't it? Yeah, the younger they are, the more aware they are. It's wonderful. I've got a nine-year-old grandson, and you can't get anything past him, I can tell you. No. <laughs> Great guest, Janet, and worth waiting for, I think. Um, right, we're on episode number 86. 86 for 85. Previous podcast, it's www.countrystride.co.uk. 
if you would like to support us, you can do it in one of three ways. You can buy our guidebooks. There are currently four in our suite of publications. Again, www.countrystride.co.uk for guidebooks with a heart and soul of Country Stride, talking about some of the history and heritage and the landscape features you might find on some fabulous walks. Uh, secondly, you can recommend us to your family and friends who may have an interest in podcasts and or the Lake District or preferably both. Uh, the more listeners we have, the higher we climb up those elusive podcast algorithms. Thirdly, we are on Patreon. Patreon is a service that allows you to support this podcast for as little as £2 a month, which is less than the price of a... A magnum. A magnum. Yeah, it probably is about £2 a magnum. Anyway, for the price of uh, a magnum, you can support us each month, uh, which allows us to pay our server bills and drive around the county. We're routinely sharing lifts now, so we're doing our little bit to save fuel costs. We really appreciate all of you, our growing band of supporters. We'd like to say a special thanks this fortnight to Tony Vaux, who actually is a previous guest. He took us round Caldbeck on a, a wonderful podcast about mining and mills and yeah, all kinds of things. Oh, wonderful. Uh, Caldbeck is an extra special village. Gosh, right, and Tony was thing. excellent. I loved his house, actually. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Tony. A little bit of news. Yes, breaking news. He's released today, this news, but because this podcast won't come out till a week today, it'll be kind of old news. Alfred Wainwright's Coast to Coast has been given national trail status mark so national trail status just to be clear there are i think 20 or something national trails official yeah they're, right? they're burgeoning all the time they've they've come to a, a bit of a stuttering halt because it's uh, quite a, an investment yes. uh, and it's a long-term investment you can't, just uh, establishing it originally like the pennine way it, it was done to support the economy of an impoverished landscape yeah. the coast to coast goes through certain places like Kirby Stevens, certainly, that could do with a bolster. But the route is very well established and most of the accommodation and so forth infrastructure is still there. I'm sure the added status of the upland area of the Pennines and the Northwalk Moors will benefit hugely from it. Uh, This is a £5 million upgrade. The main thing here is that you get waymarking and I think they're making a special effort on this one to make it more accessible. So I assume that will mean a lot fewer styles and a lot more gates it's kind of good news isn't it i mean my personal view is i'm obviously very pro making it more accessible it'd be lovely to see a a wider population of people walking it i mean actually it's very well walked anyway let's be clear it is one of the most popular long distance walks Mm. in the country would that money have been better spent on any number of other things in terms of access to the outdoors i well it's uh, probably the legacy of richie shunag He's looking after the constituency at Richmond, which is fine, absolutely fine. Uh, my interesting story in relationship to it, uh, I was involved with the original research of the route with Alfred Wainwright mm. back in 1971. Can you believe that? Mm. 51 years ago, I was walking the coast to coast with AW. And has anybody from the media been in touch with you yet, Mark, to get your interesting stories about this. A, a, a country stride is the uh, only, Is that right? Have, yes, I, have I got a world exclusive? You've got a world exclusive. Okay, so one great memory of walking with AW on the research for the Coast to Coast. Uh, well, he did everything there and back. Right. So there's no two-card tricks. 
He walked them in little, I'm little... going from Keld to Richmond and back or something. Yeah, and we, the very last bit he did, and he did it with me, from wreath to mask. Okay. That was the end of the whole walk for him. In terms of the research for him. Research. So he walked yeah. from wreath to mask and then back to wreath. And did he do all the walk himself? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I, because he didn't do the Pennine Way, did he? He kind of got a oh, bunch of people supporters to do it. or... Yes, kind of... Harry Appleyard and so on. Yeah. A group of people to do a lot of it for him. Okay, so he did do all the Coast Coast and you did quite a few bits this yeah. side, didn't you? Yeah, I did yeah. The, the Pennine Crossing and so on. From sort of Shap through to Mask. But I know this is one of your bugbears that occasionally gets um, aired is that the thing he says at the end of that book is there is no route to the coast to coast I mean (laughs) don't get me wrong I've just described the route but please don't follow it in an AW characteristic slightly annoying eccentricity (laughs) so actually would he be happy about this designation he would wouldn't he oh he'd he'd lap it up he'd Uh, lap it up but still claim that you shouldn't walk it you create a route it becomes inviolate you can't change it the countryside is for wandering in, I believe. While we're chatting about this kind of thing, we had a conversation early on where I brought up one of my pet theories, Mark, which yep. is Beatrix Potter and Alfred Wainwright share quite a lot. So hear, hear me out here. <laughs> right, they're both offcomers who move to and fall in love with the lakes. They both leave a very significant legacy in terms of how we view the Lake District. They were both illustrators and wordsmiths. They both published small little books and they were both very, very hands-on in their relationship with the publishers. They knew exactly what they wanted. They were not going to compromise. And they were also very quiet, gentle people. They didn't like the limelight. Um, I appreciate Wainwright had a slightly complicated relationship with celebrity, but generally speaking, you know, they didn't really want to be out there chatting at dinner parties. Well, <laughs> that's definitely true. He did, Wainwright certainly was not an after-dinner speaker. No. And he would not be doing my job on Country Stride. What do you think about my theory? It's bang on the nail, I think. Uh, if nobody else has thought of it, Lake District is defined by them both. Somebody might be doing a PhD about this, or they might have done it. I haven't seen any uh, research on this. And the other interesting thing about them is that their lives overlap. And my question to to listeners, if anybody knows this, is do we think they ever accidentally met somewhere? I mean, it is obviously very unlikely, but Wainwright would have known about Beatrice Potter's work, and I'm sure he would have... I mean, can you remember ever seeing any of her books at his house? No, I can't, no. Maybe if he, when he was researching Troutbeck Tongue, she might have been on the summit, gathering in the sheep. <laughs> that would probably the one occasion where they'd have bumped into one well, another. They... Unless they met in a little chef. <laughs> <laughs> they might have met in the Ingsnow. I don't, I don't you know, think... They just lived a parallel universe life. Well, if, if any listeners out there know if they met up, possibly even at, at the Ings Little Chef, then... Um... <laughs> Do get in touch. Uh, but anyway, for now, we are signing off. Next up, we're off to Lowswater. I love Lowswater. That'll be lovely. I love Lowswater. We're talking uh, about trees. Trees. Mark. We're talking trees uh, up in Homewood. We're off there. Looking forward to that very much. For now, thank you so much for joining us on Country Stride. We'll see you next fortnight in Lowswater. Water.